Philippians chapter 4. As you're turning there, I, I want to simply remind you of a simple truth that all of us learned when we were children. And some of you children right now are, are learning this truth. And the truth is simply this. You are what you eat. You are what you eat. If you eat healthy, and uh, I wish David were here right now because we are trying to teach David how to eat his broccoli. And he had the smallest piece of broccoli you can imagine. And he cut it up into even smaller pieces of broccoli. And he was eating at the dinner table the other night and making these faces that was so funny. We were busting up laughing as we're trying to teach David to eat healthy. Right? Because if you eat healthy, well-rounded diet, lots of fruits and vegetables, and uh, your milk and your meat, and your, your breads, you will be healthy. But if you fill your body with junk food, potato chips, cupcakes, candy, your body will not get the appropriate nutrition that it needs, and sickness and weakness may well come upon you. Well, everything that's true in the physical realm comes right over into the spiritual realm, but rather than eating... You need to think about thinking. In the spiritual realm, you are what you think. If you think thoughts of God, if you reflect much upon the Gospel, if you have a healthy dose of Bible intake, chances are that you will know the blessings of God in your life. But if you fill your mind with junk food, entertainment, popular reading, bad movies, your spirit will not be strengthened in the inner man. And sin and evil will easily overtake you because you have not built yourself up in strength. But it's when your mind is engaged and set upon the Lord that you are, are strong. But a mind that's not fed on the truth of God's Word is weak and susceptible to fall. Nowhere this clearer than Romans 8.6. The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. There's your choice. Mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Such is the importance of our, our text this morning. It speaks of our thoughts. It speaks of our minds and how that flushes itself out. I want to read now Philippians chapter 4. We just have two verses this morning. As we continue to work our way through this epistle, we are in the home stretch. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now notice here how Paul begins our text this morning with the word finally. Now unlike chapter 3 verse 1 which began with the word Finally, Paul is now in the home stretch of the book of Philippians. He, he, he truly is going to finish his epistle. We know because it's just right here at the end. Just another, whatever, 15 verses or so until the end. And uh, when he finishes, verse 10 and following, he's going he's to wrap it up for the whole purpose of why he wrote. If you remember, Philippians is a thank you note. Paul was in a, a Roman prison in under house arrest. Philippians heard of his situation, sent a financial gift to him, and he's responding with a thank you. He is going to say, verse 18, I've received everything. I'm amply supplied. I've received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. I'm, I'm thankful for that. It's, it's, it's wonderful the way that he acknowledges the Philippians and was excited, not about the gift itself, but about what God was doing in the hearts of the Philippians as they were givers. He's going to wrap that up at the end of chapter 4. But now, in our, our verse right here, 8 and 9, he, he wraps up the section beginning really at the beginning of the chapter. These seven verses we've had, chapters 1 through 7, contain seven commands. It's almost like one command per verse. And these last two verses are the, the culmination of those commands. Chapter 4, verse 1, Stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Verse 2, Yodi and Syntyche, I urge you, to live in harmony together. So live in harmony. There's a command. In verse 3, that this man, whoever he was, his true companion, was commanded to help them live in harmony together. Then they come, verse 4, rejoice. Verse 5, be gentle. 
verse 6, don't worry. And then slid in there at the end of verse 6, pray. And now we have two more commands to finish off this section of just rapid fire, short little commands. The command of verse 8 comes near the end of the verse, right at the end of the verse, when Paul says, dwell on these things. And the command in verse 9 comes near the end of the verse when he says, practice these things. Verse 8 has to do with thoughts. Verse 9 has to do with actions. And these are connected. Our thoughts are connected with our actions. Your actions flow from your thoughts. That's why Solomon warned his son, watch over your heart with all diligence. For from it springs, flows the springs of life. It's from your heart that flow the springs of life. It's, it's what you think. Now, the ancient uh, Jewish people, they express the heart as, as that, the, the mission control center, that which thinks. It says you think in your heart as you think within yourself, so are you. So why Jesus said, Mark 7, that which proceeds out of a man, that is what defiles the man, for from within, out of the heart, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Our sin begins in our heart. Our sin begins with our, our thoughts. And then they proceed to our actions. And likewise, our righteous actions in the same way. It begins with the thoughts of our minds. And then we'll continue into our actions. Simply put, good thoughts lead to good actions and bad thoughts lead to bad actions. It's the big idea of our text this morning, thinking and doing. It's the title of my message this morning, thinking and doing. So let's start with thinking. Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Here's my first point, just taken from the command, dwell on the good. Dwell on the good. I think that's the point here, verse 8. Paul lists eight qualities or eight things, and, and all of them have this similar characteristic that they are good things. They are pleasant things. They are desirable things. You can see them right there. It's the true, the honorable, the right, the pure, the lovely, the good repute. It's the excellent and the worthy of praise. These may be found in people. These may be found in what God has done through people. They may be found in God Himself. These are all very general, general words. And then he says, after listing all these things, he says, dwell on these things. Or as the ESV says, think about these things. Or as the New King James says, meditate on these things. Right? right? Whatever is the good, think on these things, meditate on them, dwell on them. So let's just walk through these verses, just trying to exposit these verses, just, just opening them up. Whatever is true, true is, is everything that God is. Everything that is not false. The opposite of this it might be everything that might be. Which is why anxiety is wrong. Because anxiety is dwelling upon many things that won't be that's not even true. It's reality. Whatever is true. Whatever is honorable. It comes from a word meaning worship. But it's, 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 it's more even what, what we worship in people. Not, not in the deified sense of God, but we honor people. That's why... Honor is a good word. Honorable, esteemed, may be respected. It speaks of everything that's right in our humanity and it disregards, does away with all silliness and disrespect. So whatever is honorable, whatever, whatever is there that's dignified, whatever is right, this is a legal term describing right under the law, speaks of fairness and justice. When all is as it should be, it describes righteous words and deeds. It does away with all partiality, all prejudice, all favoritism. It's just, it's just right the way things ought to be. Pure. It's related to the word we often translate holy. It just means free from defilement. It, it, it speaks of clean, cleanliness, a wholesomeness, a chastity. It's the opposite of dirty or defiled or corrupted. Lovely. This word describes those things that, that aim towards love. It's literally towards love or, or towards the lovable. It describes the pleasant, the enjoyable. It speaks of comfort and ease and love and peace and happiness. Lovely things bring smiles to our faces. 
Good repute. This is, is it literally is something good to hear. It's a, it's a good report. It, it, it speaks of the, the report that comes home from afar that is good news. It, it, it tells of, of, of hearing pleasant things. It is the satisfying story. It is the good and wholesome report. Excellence describes anything of, of moral goodness. It speaks of virtue and nobility. Describes those things that describe the best in man. Chivalry and self-sacrifice and heroism. This is excellent. So the last one, whatever is worthy of praise, whatever is worthy of our recognition, whatever is worthy of our honor. Now, now this thing here might, might, might most specifically think about God. Whatever in God is worthy of being praised. And of course, that's everything in God is worthy to be praised. But it, it describes those things for which we want to stand and applaud. It can even speak of high human achievement that is good and worthy. It can talk about any of the attributes of God. And when I sought to, to sum all those up, I said, just use the word good. Whatever is good, dwell on these things. So, so Paul, think about his, his grammar in here. He describes all these eight things and repeats this phrase over and over again. Whatever, whatever, whatever. It's, it, he wants us to reflect upon just, just whatever is true and whatever is right. And whatever is pure and whatever is lovely and whatever is of good repute and and anything worthy of praise. And God says, dwell on those things, put them in your mind and think about those things, meditate on those things. And I step back a bit and I say, what a timely word for us who live in the information age. We have more exposure to things that can come into our minds than anybody who has ever lived before. I was reflecting about this and thinking about for thousands of years of human existence, until the 1400s, the only thing that anybody ever read was that which was handwritten and then coming to them. Very expensive, probably only the elite could really have access to a lot of books. Until the 1400s, I would not be surprised if those who were educated and able to read, read everything that they were exposed to because they weren't exposed to much. And then for another 450 years, think about this. The only voice that anybody heard was a, a, a voice of someone speaking to them. Because in the late 1800s that the telephone came along. That's only been the last oh, 120, 130 years that that technology has been around. Other than that, everything would be just, just audio, hearing people. And it wasn't until the 1920s that people could listen to background noise easily in their home. 1920s, 1930s with radio, the wireless coming into homes where we begin to have this noise or begin to have this media coming in. That's less than a hundred years ago. It wasn't until the 40s and 50s that television began to make real inroads in the home where you could actually see somebody on a screen. Now you go to a theater and see that'd be a, a real special thing, but just on a constant, constant level. And that was right 60 years ago, 70 years ago. The Internet's been around for only 25 years and really brought media into our homes and into our lives maybe the last 15. Because before then, it was mostly just text. But now we get audio, video, pictures, and everything coming in. Cell phones, as we know them, but only been around for 20 years. And the iPhone, which basically brought internet, mobile device, anywhere we want, we can get it. That's, only, that's less than 10 years old. 2007, Steve Jobs introduced that to the world. The whole smart computer right there in your hand, anywhere you can be. I mean, this is a real timely word for us that we might, might think on the right things. And I, and I say this is because we've got so much media streaming into our minds, buying and screaming for our attention. And how easy is it to think about all these things that are coming, right? This one comes and this one comes. And you start, start thinking about that. And I just, how easy is it to fritter away our time? Reading status updates of all your friends on Facebook. Seeing the graduation pictures from yesterday. That's how I knew you graduated, Amanda, by the way. I just kind of popped out there and said, I knew. So, I guess you graduated. Or how easy is it to fritter away time from 
Um, seeing adorable children sleeping in awkward positions or seeing of old pictures of the Beatles or some awkward family photos or reading some infographic on languages spoken in our country or, or an article on the problems of welfare system or the, um, the conspiracies behind the 9-11 attacks. Or, or think about the movies that we watched. And, and I, just, I just went to one favorite blog I have and just started going down. And, and you could watch a three to five minute movie. Maybe some are 15. Maybe some are only 20 seconds long. But of amazing basketball shots. Of adorable puppies. Or of a coming storm or a prank gone wrong. Or some birthday surprise or the worst beatboxer ever. Or a truck that almost blows over on the highway. Or a man picking his earwax. Or some elephant that drifts down the river in Africa someplace. Or a dog in a bowling alley. Or the way movies should have ended. Or how a rock splashes in the water in slow motion. Or how people respond when a loved one returns from Iraq. I think you know what I'm talking about, right? In fact, even as I was talking on the way here to church about the link, the link bait, you know, man returns from Iraq to see his family and you'll never guess what happens. You're like, oh, I got to click that. I got to see what happens. Or the one that says dog on a unicycle, right? This will make your day. So you, I got to, I got to make my day with something. Or, or even there's a graduation speech and, First four sentences are no, but you'll never guess. You'll be surprised what he says in his fifth sentence. It's link bait to just link us in to what's what's happening. Now, you all know what I mean. And that's not to discount the many good things that media can bring us. I mean, it's amazing what media can do. Never have we been able to connect with others so quickly, so easily, even on the road, wherever we are. I mean, in a matter of a minute, if you have an iPhone, you're out someplace, you can communicate with everybody in this church about anything you want. It's amazing. It's very profitable, very helpful. And no longer do we need to waste time getting directions from people. We just go to Google Maps, go, I've got it, okay. The time that we have saved is incredible. The time maybe someone's coming to a meeting and they're late, and so they call you and say, hey, I'm going to be late. It, kids... In the olden days, we just kind of sit there and say, hmm, I wonder if they're coming. But now we know if they're coming. Now we know if they're not coming so we can leave earlier or come early. It, it saved us much. There is good in all the media we have. But I just say this. There's a danger in the media. And I say the danger is our minds being so distracted by all these things around us that we're not focusing on whatever is true and whatever is honorable and whatever is right and whatever is pure and whatever is lovely and whatever is of good repute. And we're not focusing on the excellent things and the things worthy of praise. Paul exhorted us to set our minds on these things. He laments those who set their minds on earthly things. Look back at chapter 3.19. Whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. He calls them enemies of the cross of Christ, verse 18, who are earthly minded rather than having our focus, verse 20, on our citizenship where our citizenship is in heaven. And I think of how much our media can bring us down to think only of earthly things. Now, I'm not going to abandon you. This is not an abandoned media Sunday. I'm not telling you to do that. In fact, I would argue quite the contrary because media gives us an unbelievable opportunity to fill our minds with very, very good and profitable things and to... Obey the injunction here, verse 8, in a, in a great way. Never before in the history of the world have we been able to surround ourselves with things that are excellent and honorable and good and right and true. There are literally millions of sermons on the Internet that you can download. Not all are good. But, but I would say this. I could, I could pick off enough websites for you that would be more than all of you could listen to in your lifetime. Already, right there, right now, 
good, sound, biblical, helpful sermons are out there right now. And this is just growing and growing and growing. Never before has that been possible. We can listen today with MP3 players. Here's, here's my MP3 player. It's a Santa clip, 2 gigabyte with a 16 gig card in there. I have no idea how... I have, I have about 500 sermons on here through Philippians. I think I've got, I think maybe 350 sermons of Philippians on here. And I've not listened to them all. But I have listened when my text comes around. And so this week, probably I listened to maybe four or five or six. I'm not sure. This is a, this is a common picture of me around the Brandon, the Brandon household. Right, guys? This is what I, I look like oftentimes. I, I, I'm, I'm dealing with reality here and I'm often studying thinking about things I want to listen to. And it's not just sermons on text. It can be audiobooks I listen to. I can listen to other podcasts that I find interesting. I can listen to anything I want. I can choose and say, this is what I want to fill my mind with. Uh, furthermore, on YouTube, we can watch these preachers. You can audit seminary courses online. In recent days, I have been refreshing my, my Hebrew and so I've been exercising, really been stimulating my exercise each morning. I've been watching uh, Hebrew class from uh, the Master's Seminary and uh, just kind of boning up on that because I feel like I just I need to get there again. And I just finished the course yesterday, watching it in the morning, kind of like, okay, I'm done with semester one, 503, and I'll just watch the next. It really helps engage the mind because it's so detailed and so packed, coming with a, a lot of facts. And you know what? If you want to learn Hebrew... Feel free, go ahead and take that. I can help you with anything that you're lacking. It helps that I've had some background in that. Online, you can read hundreds of thousands of the best Christian books ever for free. So I'm not telling you to abandon media at all. I just want you to make a conscious choice and use the technology. Don't abuse the technology. Because as good and as helpful as the Internet can be, it can also be wicked. It can be very wicked. You know what I'm talking about? Pictures and images and movies that ought never to enter your mind. Yet they're a click away. Uh, I see this. May this guide our media consumption, right? Eight questions. Is it true? Is it honorable? Is it right? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Is it of good repute? Is it of excellence? Does it have excellence? Is it worthy of praise? Let those eight things. And if those things are true, by all means, indulge and fill your minds. Read it. See it. Use it. Listen. Watch. And use it to direct your attention upon the Lord, which is the heart of this passage. But if not, stay away. Stay far away. And, and listen, for those of you engaged in pornography, I would just tell you to repent. You know it's bad. You know it's evil. You know it has consequences. Turn from that wickedness and seek the Lord. In fact, in our small group a, a few weeks ago, we were looking at this passage and we kept coming back to Jesus. Kept coming back to Jesus. Because Jesus meets all these characteristics. He is true. He's the true bread that comes down out of heaven. Jesus said his testimony was true. He is honorable. Never was there a man more worthy of our respect or honor than Jesus. Right they were the disciples who bowed the knee and worshipped at the feet of Jesus because he is honorable, worthy of worship. Jesus is just. He will set everything straight in the end. Several places in the Bible speak about how Jesus is the one who's going to judge and set everything right. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father until His enemies made a footstool for His feet. At that point, He's going to judge the world. Jesus is pure. He's the only one of us who's ever lived without sinning. Even being tempted by the devil, He didn't sin. He always had pure thoughts, always had pure motives. Jesus is lovely. I mean, you just need to look at how He dealt with sinners. See how lovely it was. He tenderly touched the lepers. He dealt gently with the, la the woman caught in adultery, utterly patient with the disciples. He was of good repute. He, he had fine-sounding words. Crowds would come and listen to him thousands at a time, even without amplification. They heard him gladly. People crowded into homes to see him. And when the home was so crowded, they would break into the roof in order to see people, to see Jesus. 
there's excellence. If there is excellence, it's found in Christ, right? We sang that song, Fairest Lord Jesus, Ruler of All Nations. I mean, that, that hymn just speaks over and over about how fair and how lovely and how excellent and worthy and pleasing Jesus is. He is the epitome of moral goodness and virtue. Read the Gospels and that just shines through. If there's anything worthy of praise, it's found in Jesus. He is to be praised for His compassion, praised for His wisdom, praised for His mercy and His grace, His tender love, praised for His sacrifice for sinners, that He would come and die for us sinners though we be, that we just believe in Him and we're right reconciled to Him. So, from verse 8, I exhort you to dwell on the good. Now, you may not realize just how important this is in your life. I would say, though, this is of utmost importance in your life. Maybe that's why Paul left it to last. But really, that's what he was doing the whole epistle as he spoke truth into the life of the Philippians and, and modeled his own life and the, the profitable things in that, and the things that he turned away from, like self-trust in his religious deeds and how he, he pressed on towards the goal of Christ and how he had a great heart for the Philippians and how he said, be like Jesus who humbled himself to the point of death and, and how he rejoiced in the Gospel even when people were preaching with false motives. He putting all this stuff before them that they might think about that and dwell upon that. But it is important to dwell upon the good so as I was looking yesterday out at like blogs and things like that, I, trying to figure out some of these random things that take place on the Internet, I, a friend of mine wrote a blog post that we posted yesterday. It's exactly right along this line. It says, life comes forth from the heart. Our whole experience of life derives from what it is in our hearts. Our perspectives, our meaning-making, significance-finding, even simple joy, they all come from the heart. As Proverbs 4.23 says, I already quoted earlier, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the spring of life. Your heart is what you want to watch over. The Hebrew word translated as keep, it's shamir. <laughs> I'm up on that. More specifically means either to protect or govern. If the meaning is to protect, it's about keeping watch against an enemy that nothing bad would influence our heart. If it means to govern, it's all about keeping watch. It's in restraining a prisoner that, that nothing bad comes out of the heart. Obviously, my friend continues, we want to be doing both, protecting and governing. But the second option here seems more likely, that of governing our heart. And we are strongly advised to restrain our hearts from wrongdoing, and we must do so because the tendency of our hearts is to lead us astray. We need to work to keep our hearts right and pure and dwelling on the lovely. He says, Dennis, Disney has it backwards. This can be hard to accept because it's contrary to the ever-present popular gospel according to Disney, which teaches relentlessly just to follow your heart. Follow your heart. In fact, I even think there's a song, maybe follow your heart. Help me, Disney people, is there? I don't even know, but following, following your heart, the princesses, right? We're following their heart. Frozen got it right. The girl that followed her heart ended up bad. She shouldn't have followed her heart, so that was, that was profitable. But normally it's the other way around, right? When you, Pinocchio, when you wish upon a star, all these wonderful things will happen. And so just follow your heart wherever you go. But Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10, the heart is deceitful above all things, is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Proverbs 21, 2. Every man, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Right, we all, if we follow our heart, we'll be doing like judges. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And you read judges and how well that turned out. Not very well. And this is why we pray, like David in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts because God knows that. And that's why we need to guard and govern our hearts to the best we can. And so this morning, I want you to think about your thoughts. Do, do you dwell on the good? Do you think much about Christ? Do you meditate much upon the Scripture? Do you work to bring to mind the profitable, helpful thoughts? Do you, do you put mechanisms in place so as to help you to do that? Or do you let your thoughts just run wild? Right? When, when you're driving down the road, do you have a plan? 
Or are you just kind of letting your thoughts go? Are you working hard to focus your thoughts? I love the picture that Paul uses. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Every thought captive. He's describing our thoughts as these wandering criminals that are out there that need to be apprehended and thrown in jail and kept there and guarded. We ought not to let our thoughts wander in the streets unrestrained because we know the wickedness of our hearts and we know where they would end up on their own. So we take them captive into conformity to Christ. So where are your thoughts? We would never think about allowing our children to run loose in the streets late at night. But when you let your thoughts just run and roam without taking them captive to obedience of Christ, it's more dangerous than letting your kids out late at night alone. Do you let them run loose or do you take them captive? Do you bring them in and and do you capture them to think about the good things? You know, a a good model of that recently, my wife reminded me of this, was uh, John Piper spent uh, 30 hours in the hospital. Uh, He didn't say what was wrong with him. He says he's just fine. But... But basically, he wrote an article about, uh, he says, um, 10 lessons from a hospital bed. And I want you just to see how John Piper is really working hard so as to take his thoughts and, and, and think rightly, even as something as being in a hospital. He says this, don't murmur about delays and insufficiencies of the hospital when you are getting medical care that surpasses by a hundredfold what's available to 90% of the world. Kind of <clears throat> helps you not to complain. He then quotes Philippians 2.15, do all things without murmuring. Or he says, number two, don't let yourself be numbed spiritually by the ceaseless barrage of sounds, noises, television, and chatter that surround you in the hospital. He says it's amazing of all, all these different noises. Don't, don't be distracted by all those, he says. Don't be numbed spiritually. He says, don't default to the television. And it's really good here. It's just this. And this is my heart with the whole media thing, too. He says, the hospital makes this easiest thing for you to do. There's a television for every bed. So close the button by your hand. I don't have a television at home. And the reason for that choice and this advice is not the boogeyman of sex and violence. He says it's the more subtle and pervasive dehumanizing banality of most television programming. In other words, just kind of whatever, just kind of puts us all into 1984 Big Brother, right? Just... That's what it does. Number four, he says, pray for the patients near you and if possible, without undue offense, see if your roommate will let you pray for him and tell him the words of the hope of Jesus. He's just working hard to think about ways in which he can focus on Christ. Realize, five, that the physical pain makes focusing on God's promises more difficult and demands greater concentrating efforts. In the hospital, it's a lot harder, he says. So work all that much harder when you get in the hospital. Number six, reach out to a friend or family member to help you. To bring in, help focus our direction upon Jesus. Seven, accept the humiliation of wearing the same unflattering gown everyone else wears. And I hope, hope what you see is he's just looking around him, observing and taking life and reflecting upon how that might be good. He is working hard to let his mind just not drift off and be dumb, numbed. Eight, let the pain and misery of your body and the people around you remind you of the exceeding moral horror and spiritual ugliness of sin. Everyone's in the hospital because of sin, because of Adam's sin. That sin has come to the earth. Nine, let the self-revelation of Jesus as the good physician be sweet to your soul and preach to yourself that this light momentary affliction is working for you an eternal weight of glory. Ten, pray that none of these hospital Hours, none of this pain, none of these fears, none of these relationships, none of this life-altering season will be wasted. And I hope you see what he's doing. Just taking these thought captives. He's dwelling on the good. He's looking around him and seeking just to, just to focus. And that, that's not even necessarily a part of Scripture, but Scripture has saturated his mind so that he's thinking those ways. <clears throat> and I would just say, by the way, here's where Scripture memory would come in to use the play. Because I think while he was there, he was just thinking about Scripture in his mind and evaluating things. And I, I just say this, when Scripture is in your mind, it's very difficult 
to dwell on the bad. In fact, when you're quoting, thinking of Scripture, you're not thinking of the bad. You're thinking of the good and the honorable and the right. And, and it may be that you think that because you don't have a bunch of Bible verses in your mind, you can't, you can't do this. You can't, you can't go to a situation and, and really reflect upon that. And that's it. Even if you had zero Bible verses memorized before today, and Philippians 4.8 is your first Bible verse that you've memorized, you can meditate on that all day long to your prophet. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And you can go through, through your day, just that one and only Bible verse you have. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And, and, then, and then maybe you'll see some of those things and reflect upon some of those things and, and, and reflect upon them and think on them and dwell on them. Even if this is the first verse you memorize, you can do this. You can memorize and when your thoughts begin to stray, you say, whoa, thoughts, thoughts, come back here, come back into the fold. Let's get this Philippians 4.8 thing. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, and you can just go over it again. My thoughts are going this way. No, no, no. Come back, thoughts. You can do this. That's <clears throat> what God calls us to do. Well, it's hard one verse all day long. When, when that runs out, maybe you can take up a hymnal. And even if you've never memorized any hymn before, maybe you can start with hymn number 63 that we sang today. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. That is good. That's worthy of praise. You can go around singing that. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Oh, praise Him. Oh, praise Him. Thou burning sun with golden beam, thou silver moon with softer gleam, oh, praise Him. Oh, praise Him. Talking about how the creation praises Him. Psalm 96, Psalm 98 speaks about that. Let all things their Creator bless and worship Him in humbleness. Let all things their Creator bless and worship Him in humbleness. Just, just go around just singing that. It's, it's easy if it's a tune. Sing these hymns or, or sing Scripture. Maybe put Scripture to music just so it's, it's on. Or if those are too hard, just that last chorus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. In fact, I think many of you got that memorized. Let's sing it together. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. I think you guys know what I'm talking about. You all do in terms of a tune on your mind. You start singing. I encourage you to foster that and help that. And even if it's just a phrase, all creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. If it's just one phrase, just kind of pick it up. and Those are the sorts of things that help cultivate your Christian life. Right thoughts lead to right actions. Bad thoughts lead to bad options. And maybe you need to be strategic. Maybe you need to place a CD player in your kitchen or in your bathroom, or in your bedroom, or in your workshop. Maybe you need to have speakers that you can attach an MP3 player to, that you put that in and it helps blare. So it helps you to think about those things. Maybe you need to discipline yourself in times of silence. But just be active. Just be thinking about this. What it needs that you need to do in order to think rightly. Paul is always telling us to think rightly. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Right? Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How are we transformed? By the renewing of our mind. Colossians 3.2 Set your minds on things above, 
where Christ is, see at the right hand of God, not on the things on earth. Ephesians 4.23, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. 2 Timothy 2.7, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Right? Think about what I've said, Timothy. God will give you understanding. So think and meditate upon the right things. It's, it's Paul's call here in Philippians 4. Dwell in the good. Well, quickly let's go to my second point. Practice what is right. I believe verse 8 is practiced. Verse 9 will come into being. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Again, Paul puts forth this list, this time of four things, and then comes the command, right? What, what you've learned, what you've received, what you've heard, what you've seen, these things, practice. Like, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, think on these things. Now, this is what you've learned and heard and read, received and seen. Practice these things. Now we use this word practice. It's like the physician who practices medicine. Constantly applying all that he or she learned in medical school. Or it's like the lawyer who practices law. And just always applying everything learned in law school. So like it is here. Practice makes perfect. Everything you've learned and heard and received and, and seen you're just practicing it. You're working itself out. We're all like doctors or lawyers in that sense. But notice these little words, this little, these two little words, in me. You've learned, received, heard, and seen in me. <clears throat> Paul's bringing himself as an example. Paul's saying, do as I do. You've seen me do it. Now you do it as well. He's putting himself up as an example. Chapter 3, verse 17, he did the same thing. Brethren, join in following my example. And not only me, but also observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Right? Follow me or follow others who are walking in a godly way. Chapter 2, verse 18 says the same thing. He says, you too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. You say, well, what way are you talking about? He says, well, rejoicing without complaining, verse 14. Rejoice even when you're surrounded by a crooked and perverse generation, verse 15. Rejoice even when you're passing through great suffering, verse 17. And I urge you to rejoice in the same way as I'm rejoicing, Philippians. I'm your example. And so whatever you have seen and heard, received in me, practice these things. Those in Philippi were familiar with Paul. He planted the church on a second missionary journey. Thrown out of town. On his third missionary journey, he likewise came through the city. I think twice on the way out and on the way back, he visited them. So the, the Philippians had <clears throat> had learned much from Paul. And, and right now he's even writing this letter of four chapters, lots that he can learn from Paul. He hopes to revisit the church again soon, chapter two, verse twenty four. They learned many things from Paul. They, they heard him teach when the church was established. They heard him teach when he revisited the church on those occasions. And here in the book, chapter 1, verse 27, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself. Chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 17, follow my example, not trusting in my own righteousness, of which was much, but rather, that's counted as nothing, but rather trusting in the righteousness of Christ. Chapter 4, verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. Be gentle, don't worry, be prayerful. He's, he's teaching these things. And those in Philippi learned those things. They received them, they heard them from the mouth of Paul, from the, the pen of Paul. And verse 9, Paul is simply calling those in Philippi to recall his, his teaching and put it in practice. <coughs> And maybe it's not just his teaching, but maybe it's others. He says that the things you have learned and received and heard, and this could be from other people as well. Just as he says, follow the example of those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Chapter 3, verse 17. There might be some other people, other pastors, other teachers in the congregation. Just the things you've learned. Practice these things. But he does say, particularly though, he upholds himself as an example. He says, seen in me. And if Paul's interaction in Philippi was anything like his interaction in Thessalonica, which, by the way, is kind of right down the road from Philippi, after he's kicked out of uh, Philippi in Acts 16, Acts 17 um, records the establishment of the church in Thessalonica. She planted during his second missionary journey, visited during his third missionary journey, and we can safely assume that, that what took place in Philippi was much the same as what took place in Thessalonica. And, and, 
And, and listen to this feel of Paul's ministry among, the Philippi, among those in Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I'm going to read an extended portion just to, to see how much Paul invested himself in the lives of those in Thessalonica. And I would contend he did similar ministry in Philippi. For yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing man, but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with pretext of greed. God is witness. Nor do we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even those apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. But we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you'd become dear to us. For you recall, brethren, that our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God, and you are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you believers. Just as you also know, and we're exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you in his own kingdom and glory. It kind of gives you a flavor of how he poured himself out for those in Thessalonica. He gave himself. He was with them all the time. He was, he was caring for them like a mother. He was exhorting them like a father. And I assume that those in Philippi received the same treatment. They knew a lot about Paul. Or when Epaphroditus came back, when Paul sent them back to them with this letter, certainly they could have asked Epaphroditus, well, how's Paul doing? How, how's he enduring under his suffering? And, and Epaphroditus' testimony would have been of a rejoicing man who is suffering. Well, I see two lines of application here. First is for parents. Even as Paul spoke about being among the Thessalonians and nourishing them as a mother and exhorting them, imploring them like a father, I think likewise we can place ourselves in Paul's situation here and he says, what you've learned and seen and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Parents, you are spiritual leaders of your children. Just like Paul was of the church. Now, he was speaking about a pastor, a spiritual leader, and he knows that people will follow the example of the spiritual leader more than they will what he says. And that could be a scary thought for me. But that's why character qualities are given as requirement for spiritual leaders so that they can say, do as I do. Live as I live. And every one of you parents are spiritually leading your children. Even when your children are out of the home, you're spiritually leading your children. I think of my dad still spiritually provides spiritual leadership for me and for our family, even though I've been out of the home for 20 years, 25 years, maybe longer. I can't remember. You know, there, sadly, there are parents who say, do as I do, not do as I say, not as I do. And if you do that, you are leading your children astray because when, when given a choice, will parents, will children do what parents say or will Children do as their parents do. Okay, A or B. Will they do what they say or will they do what the parents do? B is the answer. Thank you, teacher. Was it you, Darren? Uh, who it was? Whatever, someone. Carl. <laughs> Golf clap. Thank you. They'll do what they do. And so you want to train your children in the way of the Lord? Walk in the way of the Lord. You want to train your children to, in the ways of sin? Walk in the ways of sin. You want to teach your children to rejoice in the gospel? Then rejoice in the gospel. You want to teach your children to grumble and complain? Grumble and complain. You want to teach your children to be humble? Then model the humility of Christ before them. You want to teach your children to be crooked and perverse? Then live like our generation does. You want to teach your children to live for the life to come? Then live as a citizen of heaven. You want to teach your children to love the world? Then set your minds on earthly things. You want to teach your children not to be... Teach your children to be anxious, then be anxious yourself. You know, teach your children to find their peace in God. Well, then practice what is right, because the promise comes here at the end of verse 9 that the peace of God will come to you. The things, verse 9, you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Verse 7, this 
contains a similar command. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's the peace of God, right? When you're anxious and you pray, the peace comes. And if that peace doesn't come and you're still anxious, you keep praying and you wait for that peace which passes understanding. But here we see it's the God of peace coming. It is the God of the universe that comes with His peace in your hearts. And this promise comes to all who think godly thoughts, who act in godly ways, is that God will be with us. As the very last verse of this epistle says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will be with your spirit. And which of you doesn't want the God of the universe to come and be with you on your side? It's really simple, right? Thinking and doing. Think right thoughts and respond the right way, trusting always in Christ. Dwell on the good, practice what is right, and may the Lord give us strength to do these things. Let's pray. Father, what a, what a simple verse. Verses these are, a simple passage. And, and I pray that you would help us. I pray especially of how vigilant we need to be in our media-saturated internet age, which has only begun. We know what it was like before the internet was, how less distracting it was. Help us to live rightly. Help us to teach our children how to live rightly in light of all this media coming upon us. God, protect us and guard us. Help us to dwell on the, the pure and the right, the lovely, the excellent, the things worthy of praise. And Father, I pray You'd help strengthen us for obedience as well. That we would take the things that Paul has written, that Jesus has taught, that the Old Testament has taught, and know how it is that we ought to live and that we would be good practicers. That we would be good doers of the Word, not merely hearers only. Who hear Your Word and respond. That's a strength. That we're, we're not sufficient to these things in ourselves. Just as when anxiety comes, we need You to calm our hearts. So likewise here, God, when sin is pointed out and we see our sin, we, we need You to come and to help us, O oh Lord, and to be our strength and our shield. God, make us to walk in the paths of peace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.